This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 2nd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you for being with us this morning. I am super excited just to be here with you and to be preaching God's Word. I'm going to pray. If you have your Bibles, your real old-fashioned Bibles, if we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. So that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, all his letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Second Thessalonians. So I'll give you some time to find that, but we're going to actually read from the Word today. And I'm going to pray and ask that God to move me out of the way. So if you bow with me. Father in heaven, holy Father, gracious Father, good Father, generous, almighty Father God. We gather here, Lord, to be in your presence in a way that doesn't happen outside of these walls during our week. While we know that you are present with us wherever we go, wherever we might find ourselves, Lord, we trust that you are especially here with us as your people gather together. Lord, our world is full of chaos, it is full of noise, it is full of busyness, especially during this season, and I fear, Lord, that that sometimes overwhelms your voice in our lives. Even the voice that comes from within, from our flesh, Lord, competes with Your voice in our lives. The trials that come into our lives that scream at us in our pains compete with Your voice in our lives. And so we gather here, Lord, to hear Your voice, to hear Your truth, to be centered in what is real, to be reminded Not of what we have to do to please You, but what You have done in Christ. What You have done for us by fixing what we broke, by bringing us, Lord, into Your presence 
where You embrace us with Your love. And not only as individuals, not only as persons, but as a people. That You have adopted us into Your family. That we are here not because we share in personality or experience or even passions, but Lord, we share in the reality of a Savior. So I thank You for bringing such a diverse group of people together, Lord, who all share with one voice praises of Your name. And this morning, Lord, I pray that You will move me out of the way. By Your Spirit, speak the words that we all need to hear, the words of conviction, the words of comfort, the words that, that pierce and implant in our heart and actually change how we behave and how we perceive and how we live. Remind us, Lord, that You did not desire for us to be alone, but to share life with one another. We thank You this morning for Your Word. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, back in 2007, which uh, may seem like not long ago, but I'm realizing that that's over 10 years um, and it feeling more like that's a long time. But back in 2007, a movie was released called The Bucket List. Maybe you've seen it. And it told the story um, of a billionaire and a car mechanic who found their Lives kind of thrust together, their paths cross when they find themselves in the same hospital room. And although their lives uh, up to that point have been very different in all kinds of ways, as they reflect on who they are and all that they have done in their lives, they find they share two things in common. One is the looming reality of their death in the next six months. And the second is that they share a desire to complete kind of a list of adventures, to have some experiences, to enjoy certain things or accomplish certain things before they kick the bucket. Hence, the title. Now, this somewhat morbid idea, perhaps, has led a lot of people in either response to the film or just in response to that concept they heard before the film, they have this kind of carpe diem mentality, right? Seize the day and life is short and I need to make sure I have this bucket list of things that I accomplish so that life is satisfying before I pass. So I asked them, do you, maybe you have a bucket list. I don't have personally a bucket list. I never really sought to make a bucket list, but many people have lists of accomplishments, goals, things of that nature. And even if you've never actually made a list, I think given enough time and maybe some mortal motivation, you would come up with one pretty easily. Things that you would hope to have seen. Things that you'd hope to have done. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with having a list of goals to achieve or adventures to experience before what amounts to this vapor of a life passing away. The characters in this particular story uh, spare no expense on their bucket list. Uh, the one guy is a billionaire, and so he can basically do whatever he wants. And so their experiences include, like, you know, uh, climbing the pyramids, uh, walking, actually, not walking, riding motorcycles across the Great Wall of China, which I highly doubt is legal, but it looks cool, um, dining in Paris, skydiving. Driving really cool cars, Shelby GTs, and they always like you're like, wow, that would be really fun. 
And they do all these things together, although they're complete strangers up to this point. So at one point in the movie, when they're sitting atop the pyramids, or one of the pyramids, one of the characters shares a story about what the ancient Egyptians believed about death. Now, I have no idea if this is what the ancient Egyptians believed. I don't really care. I know it's not true, but it makes for a good story. According to the story, at the entrance to whatever heaven is in the Egyptian theology, a guard will ask you two questions. One question is, have you found joy in this life? It's a great question. It's a question that the author of Ecclesiastes pushes on us a little bit. The second question in the same story, the guard will ask, has your life brought joy to others? And I guess these are the entrance exam questions for whatever heaven is, I'm not sure. And they're good questions to ask. Essentially, the characters in the story come to realize that life isn't meant just for themselves. And it's not meant to be done alone. And these questions, again, good questions. I think in many ways it does or can get people closer to what is the true purpose biblically according to our Lord for life, but it does fall short if you just are asking those two questions. But certainly if Jesus Christ provides the perfect model for life, we do see that much joy, if not ultimate joy, is found in laying down your life for others to the glory of God. Now, the movie and the certainty of my own death one day and our deaths one day, it led me to wonder if one's answer to the question, what's on your bucket list, should be different if the person asking the question is a follower of Christ or a denier of Christ. Like, if you're a Christian... Your answer to, oh, what's on your bucket list, is that different? And of course, the Sunday school answer is, oh, yes, of course. Yes, it's different. But I wonder if we know why there's a difference or what that difference is. And so I pondered that a lot over these last weeks. And I'm convinced that the chief difference in the answer probably begins with asking a better question. It's not a matter, I think, for the Christian of what is on your bucket list. And if you have one, fantastic. There's lots of fun what's, and God has given many gifts for us to enjoy, including creation itself. But it's not a matter of what's on your bucket list as much as I think it is who. Of who is on your bucket list. Who do you share life with? Who will you share life with? Who perhaps must you share life with. It's my contention that a shared life is part of the normal Christian life. More than that, that a shared life is actually essential in finding hope and in finding joy and in giving God glory and even perhaps in growing in holiness. It's interesting if we Just go backwards a little bit into the second chapter of Thessalonians. The last two verses. Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Notice what Paul says. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus as it is at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What a powerful statement to these Thessalonians about Paul's heart. He says, you are our joy. You are our hope. You are that which we will boast about. Perhaps it's not about what is on your bucket list, but who. Let's talk about this idea of the normal Christian life being a shared life with other Christians. First and foremost, a shared life of that nature means that you actually ask others to share their life with you. Now, in this context, worried about the persecution of these young baby Christians in this new church, Paul sends his right-hand man, Timothy, to check on this church plant, to ask them in many ways, how are they doing? He has returned, it seems, and it says, now that Timothy has returned, with an encouraging report about the church in Thessalonica where it's really hard to be a Christian. Here's what he writes in verse 6. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. My question is this, which might seem strange, but who or when was the last time someone asked you about your faith? Inquired about how you were doing spiritually. And there's lots of ways some rather cheesy that Christians have asked that question over the years. How's your walk, right? But really, who or when was the last time someone inquired about how you were doing spiritually? We ask each other, I think it's the most common question we ask each other or strangers, like, how you doing? We say it all the time. How you doing? How things going? And in response, depending on probably our personality and our relationship to this person, we give answers. Some of us give very good news. Oh, things are fantastic. Couldn't be better. Some of us give bad news. Life stinks right now. It's difficult. It's hard. I think many of us potentially give a lot of fake news. News that sounds good, news that might be worse than what we think, if we give any news at all. Oh, I'm fine. Things are good. I'm okay. Things are great. How are you doing? How's the family doing? As a pastor, I get the question, how's the church doing? I never really know exactly how to answer that. I know the kinds of answers that are expected. But I struggle sometimes on what to say. How are you doing? How's the family? How's the church? 
These are good questions, and I think in many of us, they elicit some kind of automatic and, dare I say, superficial responses. Maybe we'll talk about our physical health. Maybe we talk about our material security. Ah, man, just working a lot, trying trying to pay bills, trying to pay off debt, trying to secure by retirement. We talk about our measurable achievements or the achievements of our children or those that we love. We talk about sometimes the measurable failures we had. Few of us, I think, talk about our faith. I might be wrong. I don't say most. There are people in this church and in other churches and other places that have very genuine conversations about faith, I just say it may be rather uncommon. Few of us talk about our faith, I think, when they are asked those kinds of questions, how are you doing? But I think maybe it's possible that even fewer people ask those kinds of questions. And why is that? As a spiritual people, as a people who uh, know the realities of this world, that this life is not all there is, that Jesus Christ has died and risen again and will return, why is it that we're not asking one another about our faith, about how we're doing spiritually? I mean, essentially, we share life with ease as long as we are talking about things that are not of spiritual significance. And again, that's not everyone, but perhaps it's a lot. Paul and Timothy are not looking for a personal or practical report about life from the Thessalonians. They want to know how their faith is. How their relationship with God is. What the relationship with Christ is like right now. They're not making inquiries of the church like some denominational executives asking for how many baptisms have there been? What are your attendance numbers like? What new programs have you launched? And I have no idea if that's what denominational executives ask because I've never been part of a denomination, but I imagine the worst, right? I don't know. They're not asking for that kind of stuff. They're asking not like executives, not like ones like we planted the church. Have you guys screwed it up yet? They're asking with all the affection of a family. Do you know that there is something that should distinguish Christian friendships and relationships from other kinds of relationships. They should be distinct. And I don't say that every Christian relationship you have with another Christian should be this way. I just simply believe that there needs to be relationships in your life where you have spiritual conversations then if all you have is yourself, if all you have is your spouse, I would offer that that might not be enough to share your life with. There's something that distinguishes Christian relationships from all other relationships. The reality is we're in relationship not because we share the same interests or the same experience or personality or passions, but because we share the same Savior. That we have been saved from different kinds of sin, but the same sin problem and the same Savior with the same grace has brought us together, a very diverse group of people. But within that group of people, we have, yes, relationships that are important. And the truth is this, you'll know 
if the relationship you have with another Christian is truly centered on Christ, or any relationship if it's centered on Christ, because through that relationship, you draw closer to Christ. And if you have a relationship, even a Christian relationship, and you're not drawn closer to Christ through that relationship, it's possible it's not actually centered on Christ. doesn't mean it's centered on the worst things in the world. It does mean that there needs to be relationships other than, I should say, the pastor or the Bible study leader, the ones you kind of expect to shepherd, where people are inquiring and asking about your faith. Timothy has returned with good news, not concerning memberships, not concerning ministries, not concerning practical matters of how they're doing, but news about their faith in God and their love for one another in the midst of affliction. If you go backwards, the whole letter really is kind of Timothy's report and Paul responding to it. In the first chapter of Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, this is what has been reported about their faith says in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Like we're talking about good news, reports of faith, Really at the core, it says, I've turned from these idols and I'm turning towards God. I love my sin less and I love God more. And that's the report they're hearing. It's going across all of Macedonia, all of Greece. And there's also reports of their love. Later in the letter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is what Paul will write about their love. Beginning in verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So their love and their faith has gone out. They've become known for it. It has resounded across Greece. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty, their love for God has increased and their love for one another has grown even beyond their own church. And in truth, this is the opposite of what we probably expect, at least for many of us, different than what we've experienced. Because when life gets difficult, when faith gets difficult, I think many of us are tempted to throw ourselves a pity party of self-love. And that's what a pity party really is. It's a self-pity party. I love myself, and myself doesn't feel very loved. We stop sharing life at those moments, and we start to isolate, and we start in many ways hoarding our life. Even though the Thessalonians cannot be with Paul, even though Paul can't stop their affliction, here's something to note. It is encouraging, and they even say so, to the Thessalonians that Timothy was sent to ask. That Paul cares 
He didn't just plant the church. Hey, got that one going. Let's go on to the next one. He sends his right-hand man, his son in the faith, his, one of his best friends, go, go find out. Go back into affliction. Go back into difficulty and ask them, please, brothers and sisters, never, ever, 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 ever underestimate the power of asking. There's so much power in you taking the time to inquire about someone's life and about their faith. People want to know that they're known. People want to know that you care. For those of us who pretend to be strong, like, I don't need anybody to ask me, you're lying. It feels good for someone to come and ask, how are you? How are you spiritually? There's power even in the ask. A shared life means that we take more than a general interest in one another. It means that we actually take the steps to care about one another's spirituality. To ask. That's where shared life begins. And for some of us, Asking is one of the hardest things to do. But for others of us, sharing when we're asked is the harder thing to do. Because a shared life isn't just about, you know what, I'm going to ask, I'm going to inquire, I'm going to actually take an interest in this person's faith. How are you? Where are you with Christ? Some of us, when we get asked that question, we don't know what to do. Or we know what to do, and that is, I don't want to talk about it. Sharing life means asking and actually sharing when you are asked. And it seems that many of us are quite reluctant to share about things. Now, some of us are not. Some of us love to overshare. We want to be friends with everybody and believe that my transparency is a gift to the world. I would say there's something honorable in discretion... But there is also something quite sorrowful about suppression. I don't suggest you share everything with everyone, but if you're never sharing anything with anyone, there could very well be a problem. It's likely that many of us feel that we are doing people a favor by not sharing. I don't want to burden you with my struggles, or burden you knowing you're struggling with my joys. Perhaps we feel that anything I might share might be hurtful. And you don't actually think, what if it's a grace? What if your sharing is actually a blessing? whether it be sharing the struggle and the difficulty you're in or sharing the joy and the faith that you're experiencing, whatever it is, what if it's actually not a burden, but it's a joy to be heard? Here's what Paul writes. He says in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, the, the report, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live 
if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Far from being a burden, the report of their faith the report of their love in the midst of affliction strengthens Paul in his own. This is why Paul basically later will say, look, life and sharing life with the faithfully afflicted helps to endure our own afflictions. Now, this can happen lots of ways. Sometimes this is reading the biography of someone who is long past and they are telling the story of great affliction and the tremendous faith they had in the midst of it. There's all kinds of biographies around here that you can read. But you don't necessarily have to go that far. There's certainly those stories, those biographies, those testimonies, those reports. But there are many, even in our own church, and this is not about finding someone who has it worse off than you do so you can feel more fortunate about your own experience. It's about spending time with the people whose faith has grown through affliction. And that is a sacred space. These faithful sufferers, the ones that experience pain, in loss or other kinds of affliction, and yet their faith grows. If you've not read any of Johnny Erickson Tata's work, a woman who dove into a pool at early teens and is paralyzed, started an entire ministry. She is paralyzed from the neck down. She has had chronic pain for her entire life. She has had now in her second battle with cancer, and she is one of the most faithful saints I've ever read about. You don't have to go far, though. There's certainly the Jerickson, Jerickson, Johnny Erickson Tadas, but there's also the Lois Glovers, who experiences the loss of her husband of 50 years and yet sings faithfully worship songs at his funeral. There's the Susan Alps, who's currently battling cancer. And she was here last service. You ever spent time with Susan? Tell her right now, she won't complain. And you'll leave there joyful. Someone who says, ah, this is a gift. And you go, ah, what faith. The Noel Baylors, the Kristen Jacobsons. Some of these names you know, some you don't. There are other names in our church who are suffering other things and doing so faithfully. Their faith inspires my heart. And these people don't just inform our perspectives about affliction. As you get near to them and as you share life with them, you can't help being invited to draw nearer 
to God through them. This is why Paul writes about affliction in his second letter to the Corinthians. If you go to the left, you'll come to it, but I'll put it up on the screen because I'm nice and not mean. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, notice what Paul writes about affliction. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. See how God uses His own people and the affliction and the sharing of life to bring comfort. It says that He'll comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Wow. Sharing Christ with one another through the comfort that He gives us in our own affliction. And Paul, he's not, he's not just merely like, man, that's really encouraging. He actually says he is sustained by their faith. It says, he, he believes that so much he can say, we live if you stand. I, I can live if you are standing in Christ. Like he sees his life not just like, well, I'm the guy that planted the church. I'm the guy that preached the gospel. They formed, I'm kind of responsible. Like he sees his life bound up with the lives of the people in this church. Paul says in many ways, he can breathe knowing that they are standing fast in the Lord. In the midst of his own afflictions. And if you want to know a list of them, go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 11. Like, there's a list. He had all kinds of afflictions and beatings and imprisonments and all kinds of things. He's like, in the midst of my own afflictions, I'm so comforted by the fact that you are standing firm in the faith. As a pastor, and just as a Christian, there is a tremendous amount of joy in seeing people converted and seeing Jesus save people and seeing blind people see and dead people live. Like, it, there's... Uh, no greater joy in many ways, but there's an equal joy at least in seeing Christ at work in the hearts of His people. In seeing faith refined and faith built even in and through the midst of affliction. And as you see that, as you watch that unfold, maybe you don't experience it in life, and you, maybe you're, you're feeling weak or dry or whatever, as you see the faith of others in their affliction, it is such an encouragement. It's a source of strength when you feel weak. The faith of others is a fountain of joy when you feel dry. The faith of others is a cause for thanksgiving when you feel lacking. And it's interesting how much affliction causes us to isolate and pull away from people when God says, you need to share life. 
There are those of us who, when things get difficult, we withdraw. And there are those of us who withdraw, not realizing that we could actually be a blessing by sharing our faith. News reports only go so far. And this is why Paul says so often that he wants to be with them. Feeding off of the faith of others requires more than reports and more than news and more than whispers. It requires a face-to-face fellowship where we know each other's faith intimately enough and it begins to strengthen our own. And you have to be close to do that. You have to be willing to share to do that. You have to be intimate to do that. Now, as I consider, and there was a story I wanted to share. I know many of us don't think that asking the question or sharing has that much impact. And let me tell you just a quick story that I skipped over, but I want to revisit it. So recently, many of you know, I did a funeral for a family who lost their six-year-old daughter in a tragic accident. And that's a sacred space to spend time with. And it's difficult at times to come up with answers. And even as a pastor, you're like, what do I tell them? What do I say? What would bring encouragement? So as I was talking to the dad about his experience, I asked him a lot of questions. And one thing he noted was struck me like crazy. He said, you'd be surprised how lonely it is. I said, what do you mean? He's like, no one calls. No one asks. No one shares. I said, why do you think that is? And he said, they don't know what to say. And so instead of saying anything, they just isolate. And they withdraw. He says he'd go into Starbucks because it's a very well-known family, very connected. He'd go into Starbucks and he'd literally hear people and see people, yeah, that's the family. But not say anything. And he wasn't blaming them. He, he goes, I've been on the other side of that. I understand. And I said, what, what, what did you want? He's like, just someone to ask. Just someone to share. Never underestimate the power of a simple question. And never underestimate the power of you sharing your faith in God in the midst of your affliction or not and how it can encourage someone in their own. Because in many ways, you know what? I didn't try to give answers. I talked about my God and the faith that I had in Him and the joy I had in Him and asked Him, like, where are you at with the Lord? It's simpler than you think. Sharing life is uncomfortable at times, difficult at times, but beautiful most of the time if you have the courage. Finally, as we look at the last few verses of this particular section, a shared life is more than just asking and talking. It's more than just sharing with one another. It's actually going before our God. It actually means praying for one another. 
I know all kinds of feelings come up when I say that. You should pray for one another. The final verses of chapter 3 here, 11 through 13, they are a prayer. A prayer that will have been read publicly. Many of us, I think, truly misunderstand the nature and the power of prayer. Uh, similar to reading the Bible I talked about a few weeks ago, where reading the Bible is more than just an intellectual exercise. Prayer is more than just talking to God or expressing our feelings. Prayer is entering into the presence of God. Prayer is entering into the presence of Yes, God is present everywhere we might be and find ourselves. But there's something mysterious and unique about entering into the presence of God through prayer. It is a very tangible release of control. As you go before the Creator of the universe and you admit you're not in control and you claim dependence and you admit need and you confess that I don't know what to do, but I'm coming to you. Prayer is an act of humility. I found myself this past month praying on my face in the center of this building. And there is something not magical, but powerful about getting on your knees or getting on your face before the Lord. And sometimes, you know what? All, all we can muster is a groan. Romans 8 talks about that, right? And it says, that like, if, if, as you go before the Lord, you just got to go, <laughs> I don't know. The Holy Spirit fills in the blanks. And all your, ugh. Holy Spirit goes, okay, here's what He needs. Here's what his heart needs. There's a humility to that where, where you abandon all pride. Where your hope is redirected and your intimacy with God suddenly is rich and enjoyable. A shared life means that we pray for one another. And I know, as I said, when I say that, um, many of us without much thought say we'll pray for one another a lot. Right? I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And sometimes that's just an excuse to get out of the conversation. I know. Right? Hey, I'm going to pray for you. See ya. Right? And many of us do pray. I'm not suggesting we all do that, but we probably have all done that on occasion. I'll pray and then we forget to pray or we, oh gosh, I said I would pray and I don't know how intentional we are about it all the time. We say it a lot. I don't 
mean when I say we pray for one another that we just say we pray for one another. I mean that we actually do. There is nothing I can think of that is more sacred and more powerful than entering into the presence of God through prayer on the behalf of someone else. Going before the Lord of the universe and not speaking for yourself, not asking for yourself, not you know confessing a genuine need, but bringing somebody else. I mean, you just think about like going before a celebrity or going before whoever that important person in your life and like, what would you say? Like, to go before the Lord of the universe and then go, this person. I can't think of anything more powerful. So what Paul writes in verse 11 through 13, he says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. He certainly petitions God for important things. He asks God that, that He would allow them to reunite with these people in this church. He asks God to increase their love for one another. He asks that God would make their hearts blameless and holy at Jesus' return. There's a ton to learn from Paul's prayers. It's a great book on Paul's prayers. I can't remember. That might be the actual title. But if you survey his letters, you typically will find a prayer or two in the letters. And as you read them, um, they are just powerful. One Man noted that they are touching and profound and eloquent and loving. However, they're a guide to us in our own journey of faith because Paul's heart was fixed on essential things. Things which are true and important and indispensable. So Paul's prayers become a mirror in which we can examine ourselves asking whether our concerns are anywhere close to Paul's. Although we could spend time on what Paul prayed, I just want to take a second to actually focus on the fact that Paul prayed. Paul is writing this letter to encourage the Thessalonians. They are afflicted. He knows that's part of the report as well. They are faithful. They are loving. But they are still hurting. And so he wants to encourage them. And what does he do? He writes a prayer that will be read publicly. At the end of his own this letter in 1 Thessalonians 5, he will say, brothers, pray for us. Out of all things he could do, not send money, not come and visit me, like pray for us. That, pray for us, please. So this past week, as many of you in here know, I found myself in tremendous affliction. Uh, about in March, well, I should say about a year ago, um, my legs stopped working. Some of you probably remember last year, I stumbled around and it was just not good. Pain everywhere, numbness, weakness. Didn't know what it was. 
Went to the doctor, started with a lower back MRI. Then I went to a coffee shop after the MRI, like a couple days later, and I had numbness up my abdomen. Like, that's not good. Went for a second MRI in the middle of my back. Ended up in a surgeon office where some amazing nurse practitioner, who I am grateful to God for, began to do weird things with my hands and flick my eye. I mean, just all kinds of weird voodoo magic, and said, we need to look at your neck. And I'm like, my neck? All right. So they got a third MRI on my neck, and I saw my spinal cord just pitched. And so the surgeon says, you need surgery like now. So they fused my neck and made me like Darth Vader and like got kind of fused my neck. And things got fixed. And things have progressively gotten better for since March. Uh, some residual stuff. The doctor literally said like, by the way, we could do the surgery and nothing might change because your spinal cord's been damaged. So, And everything really has resolved itself. And I started having strange symptoms. My sister called me a month ago. And she said, I have numbness on my arms and all this stuff. She said, What's, what, tell me about your experience. And I said, well, I told her. And I said, they scanned me and they found my neck was and they fixed it. Okay. And she called me two weeks ago and said she got a diagnosis for MS. I said, oh, no. Well, that's a genetic thing. My symptoms haven't gone away, and sometimes they can get worse. And so I went in to get a scan. I said, I want my brain scanned. And so I shared my need. No one asked because no one knew, and I didn't care. I wasn't waiting for anybody to ask. I shared my need. Shared my need with my friends, shared my need with the elders, shared my need with pastors, shared my need with anyone, and asked them to pray. I shared my fears. I shared my life. And people prayed. A lot of people prayed. People prayed with me. People prayed for me. People gathered to pray. People texted me that they were praying. People sent emails that they were praying. Messages that they were praying. Phone calls that they were praying. Last Sunday... Beloved sister just said, I just need to pray for you. And laid her hands on him, prayed for me. Friends prayed. Starbucks baristas came out from behind and prayed. Couples prayed. Families prayed. Even strangers prayed. There were countless people prayed. And I'm so glad because James says the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And I was hoping there was one righteous man in all the people that were praying. And the scan came back clean. And I wept. Out of joy. But I wept. And I wept for lots of reasons. Because there were many times when I felt scared. Okay, there I admit it. Ooh, pastor was scared. Yeah, I was scared about lots of things. And I admitted it. And there were times I felt weak. And there were times I felt faithless. And there were times I felt despairing. But you know what I never felt? Alone. Not one time. And I'm convinced it's not because I'm the pastor. But it's because people asked and I shared. And we shared life. 
In many ways, my life is bound up with you all, and your life is bound up with me. These prayers were well beyond feelings of appreciation, right? Our prayers go out to whoever. Okay. Way beyond just sentiment. There were literally scores of people entering into the presence of the Creator of the universe, coming before His throne and uttering my name. Pleading for my life. Asking God to minister to my heart, and He did. That's the shared life I'm talking about. So, I realize that as we close, then when I say shared life, some people are like, oh gosh, oh, I don't want to do that. I, I, can't, I can't ask people about their faith and get all involved. I don't want to be sharing about my faith. I don't want to be praying about all these people. That seems like a lot. I know there's people in here going, I don't, I don't know if I want to share my life. That's hard for me. That's not normal for me. It may not be normal, but it's good. Do you know there's only one thing that the Lord said was not good before the world fell because of our sin? Man being alone. And it's still not good. I think it's interesting for those who say, I don't, I don't know if I want that, I don't know if I need that. Let's pause there. If we look at verse 13 for a second. You look at what Paul prayed in verse 13. He says he wants their love to increase, right? So that God might establish their hearts. As if he connects their increase in their love for one another with their increase of holiness, their pursuit of holiness. It's that idea that their love for one another is, is preparing them to see God. And that it works together. Sharing life prepares us. And I think it's noteworthy that Paul, throughout this letter in particular, speaks a ton about the return of Christ. It's as if he always has eternity in mind. He says in verse uh, 10 of chapter 1, you've turned to God from idols to serve the one true God, to wait for His Son from heaven. Or verse 19 of chapter 2, Right? What is our hope or joy, a crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Or again, in chapter 2, verse 13, that He'll establish His hearts blameless before the throne at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Like Paul is always thinking about being with Christ. He doesn't just want to see God and have His own holiness. He wants to see others with God. And that's why he shares life. Because he realizes they go together. Insofar as I believe this is our greatest desire for others, we will give our lives, we will share our lives so that we can see life happen in others. The best way to prepare for the return of Christ is to share your life 
with other Christians. Now, Jesus had a bucket list. In fact, he wrote his bucket list before creation ever began. And there was only one thing on it. The one person who knew the day and the way he would die put one thing on his bucket list. And that was to die for others so that they might live. And even though it would require the ultimate sacrifice to enter into His broken creation and to suffer and to live the life that we have lived, but perfectly so, without sin, and share His life, that that sharing would require the greatest sacrifice. You know what Hebrews 12 tells us? He did that in the pursuit of joy. That He saw the cross And the joy beyond it. And I wish we could see that as we talk about sharing life. Because when we talk about sharing life and and inquiring and taking an ownership in one another's spirituality, we think, oh, that sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot of loss. That sounds like a lot of blah. What if it's joy? What if that's where joy is found? Because that's what it seems Jesus' life was all about. If we are truly restored in Christ to bring restoration through Christ, then our bucket list is not a matter of what's. It's a matter of who. Who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ before they or you die? Whose faith do you need to inquire about? Who needs you to share your faith in order to comfort their current affliction? And whose faith do you need to share in in order to find joy in your own? Whose burden do you need to share? Whose faith has you been charged to care for? Whose name do you need to petition the Lord for? As Paul wrote, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Who, not what. Who will be your hope? Who will be your joy? Who will be your crown of boasting at the return of Christ? I shared my life with them. I shared my life with them. I shared my life with them. Nothing more beautiful than a shared life with brothers and sisters in Christ. A life where we're not alone. Where we have Christ in one another as we look forward to His return, we're with Him face to face. Let's pray.